Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. How many times a day or week does someone say something so outrageous that it causes you to say, what? What did you say? Where did you get that idea from? And then maybe you go further and ask, what is your proof? Well, this actually happens every day. And in fact, during most of 2021, Trump's lawyers went before judges in 60 or so venues, and often it was the judges who asked those questions. In all of those cases, when all the posturing was done, Trump's attorneys had no proof for their accusations that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump. The request for proof doesn't only happen in court. It happens in science, in sports, in everyday life. Today we have with us Frederick Schauer, who is the David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia, and is here today to discuss his latest book, The Proof, Uses of Evidence in Law, Politics, and Everything Else. I am pleased to welcome Frederick Schauer to Politics, A Love Story. Hi, Fred. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm happy to be here, and thank you very much for doing this. Uh, I wish we could do it live, but the world doesn't let us do that yet. No, and plus, uh, the 3,000 miles separating us makes it kind of hard to do it in person. Right. (laughs) Um, Let me start. Uh, I'll set the table, and then we can go from there. Sure. More and more, the use and misuse of evidence has a prominence that would surprise anyone who thinks evidence as a collection of often silly lawyers' rules governing the conduct of trials. But evidence is not only about trials and not only about law. It is about science. It is about history. It is about psychology. And it is, above all, about human rationality. What do we know and how do we know it? More specifically, what do we know about the facts of the world and how do we know them? Is that basically what your book is about? It is basically about that, and therefore it is basically uh, about evidence outside of court. I think there is a lot that everybody can learn from what courts and lawyers and judges in the judicial system do about evidence. Uh, But the basic motivation and focus of the book is on evidence uh, outside of court, uh, evidence in all sorts of uh, diverse things, including politics and medicine and science uh, and art authentication and history uh, and countless other things that we confront uh, in public policy and as we go about our daily lives. I noticed in reading your book that you have a a reasonable sense of humor. And uh, the. I'm uh, trying to get over it. (laughs) Well, actually, I enjoy that. And one of the things you said was Elvis is dead. Tabloid tabloid headlines to the contrary. Elvis Presley really did die on August 16th, 1977, and he has remained dead ever since. That is a fact. And you point out the difference between facts and the willingness of people to question whether it is a fact or not. And uh, this is an important thing that you're uh, trying to get across to us. I think that's right. Uh, And I think using that as the opening lines or the opening vignette of the book um, was designed in part to suggest um, that 
evidence is, as you just said, evidence is relevant outside of courts, but also to suggest that um, we may pay too, too much attention to opinions in public discourse and not enough on actual hard concrete facts. Uh, uh, and that um, if we were to spend a little bit less time on arguing about what we ought to do and a little bit more time on what is, maybe we would wind up with a better sense of what we ought to do. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because I think that's a good segue into this next statement from your book. It is one thing to say that there are facts. It is quite another to determine what those facts are. And once we shift from the idea of a fact to questions about figuring out what those facts are, to deciding which claims about the facts are true and which are false, we enter the realm of evidence, the subject of the book. Right. It's, um, so uh, this is not a uh, book of, um, to use overly fancy um, philosophical terminology, it's not a book of ontology. It's not a book of metaphysics. That is, it is not about uh, what actually exists in the world. Uh, it's about how we know about what exists in the world and starts with the assumption that things exist in the world. There are um, actual facts and actual things that happen and actual things that, uh, as I said, exist. But the big problem for human beings is figuring out um, what those things are and figuring out which claims about what exists are true and which ones are not. And you also move us through how you get from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And I'm going to bring up uh, another thing from your book. A Supreme Court Justice, Amy Coney Barrett, signed an anti-abortion advertisement some years ago that is evidence for what she then believed, which is in turn evidence for what she now believes, which is in turn evidence for how she might decide. So So you're you're moving through uh, from a fact to a supposition. Or or a fact to an inference. Um, that's a bad that is, uh, uh, and I think that that turns out to be, in my view, not only a good example, uh, but of course, these days and in the upcoming weeks and months, um, with the uh, hearings upcoming on Judge Jackson, uh, a timely issue. That is, there are certain things we know. So as with uh, now Justice Barrett, we know that she signed a particular advertisement. But that's in the past. What we are interested in then is what does that tell us about what she believed in the past? And what does what she believed in the past tell us what she is likely to do now? That's what we care about. That's what we care about in a judicial hearing. Uh, And really, most questions of evidence are about inferences of this sort. Um, There are certain very hard facts, but The inferences um, are what we draw from those facts. So uh, we see somebody uh, slurring his speech and walking unsteadily. We infer from that that he's drunk. Uh, But we didn't actually see him drink anything. Um, uh, It's possible that other things caused the slurring of speech, 
uh, and the unsteady walking, but we make a reasonable, even if not an absolute, totally beyond the reasonable doubt, no doubt about it, inference from what we observe uh, to what we really care about. Is he drunk or not? So um, I'm contrasting that with something later in the book when you talk about the inability of the prosecution to bring in past bad deeds about a defendant and uh, making inferences then. And yet we're making an inference about Amy Coney Barrett because of what she did before. So this is, uh, this is an example of an area in which the law seems to depart from common sense. Uh, That is, uh, in the law, the basic rule, which like much of law has lots of exceptions, qualifications, uh, caveats, and so on. uh, But in the law, um, it is basically impermissible to use somebody's bad acts to show what they might or might not have done on this occasion. So if somebody is charged with robbing a bank, the fact that they have been convicted of three bank robberies in the past is inadmissible in court to show uh, as evidence to show that they have robbed the bank on this occasion. Uh, That is to most ordinary people, to use the appropriate technical term, nuts. Uh, It departs from common sense. Uh, The law has a couple of good reasons for this. Uh, One Um, the law has a view that once you've done something and been punished for it, uh, you have, as it is put in lots of classic movies, paid your debt to society, and you shouldn't be punished again by having it used against you. And the law is also worried that things that are pretty good evidence of something will be understood, especially by the people who sit on juries, as being absolutely conclusive evidence of that. So the law is worried about overvaluation uh, of relevant evidence, and it compensates for that by undervaluation. So the law doesn't think that it's not relevant. The law just precludes its use because of these various worries. So that you've robbed the bank in the past is relevant to what you have done in the recent past or even to what you might do in the future in much the same way that what Justice Barrett uh, said in the past is at least relevant to how she might decide in the future. Uh, And actually, uh, you shouldn't, given what we're talking about, you shouldn't take my word for that. That is, there is a lot of very serious political science empirical research indicating that the uh, best predictor of what a Supreme Court justice will decide is that justice's extrajudicial political attitudes and ideology. Mm. And we can see clear evidence of that in today's court, the makeup and what they're actually trying to move the country to um, based upon what we knew about them when they were nominated. Uh, It's coming true to... uh, to us, for us to see, all, all of us to see that. And I think that's a good thing. Um, that is, um, the watershed moment was um, that you and I remember, and maybe many of your view, uh, listeners will remember, the watershed moment was in 1987, uh, the hearings on the nomination of Judge Robert Bork to be a yeah. Supreme Court justice. 
prior to the Bork hearings, with very few exceptions, uh, the hearings on Justice Brandeis um, in the ninth, uh, almost a century before that, well, 80 years before that, uh, were an exception. But generally, the hearings would involve only the recitation and pro forma inquiry about a judge's or nominee's formal paper qualifications. Where did they go to law school? Uh, uh, and so on and so on. What kind of practice did they have and everything else? After the Bork hearings, it became fair game to examine a nominee's um, political background, moral background, ideological background. Uh, and that has remained with us ever since. Uh, not everybody thinks that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. If we believe the evidence from the political scientists, this is pretty good evidence of what these justices are likely to do, especially in high salience areas like um, abortion, going back a few years, same-sex marriage, affirmative action, and so on. Um, So I think it's appropriate that this be out in the open rather than continuing with the illusion uh, that it is the formal positive law that's the only thing that determines what Supreme Court justices will do. But it really doesn't make too much difference what they have done or not. It's in the numbers. Whomever has the majority uh, in the Senate is uh, the party that determines whether that person will be uh, appointed or not. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts one of his first jobs when he was working in government was to write a paper on how to suppress the votes of black people. Uh, We're seeing the result of all that now. There is uh, all this voter suppression going on. And he's the one that said, when confronted with um, Nicholas Stephanopoulos's, uh, uh, the efficiency gap, which was a mathematical formula to show whether uh, there was extreme partisan gerrymandering, Roberts is the one who said, oh, I don't understand all this gobbledygook. Come on. A judge, especially a Supreme Court judge, has to know mathematics and figuring things out. And in those courts that he was on before, he had to make determinations of how to divide uh, property and money. So it's not gobbledygook. He just was sloppy. It's not gobbledygook. uh, And... uh, Chief Justice Roberts is too smart a person not to understand what he called gobbledygook. He's too smart a person not to understand the serious academic literature about many of the things that he uh, doesn't want um, to consider uh, as a Supreme Court justice. Um, So he's making a political statement, too, not necessarily a partisan one. Uh, although a little bit of that too, but a political statement about uh, what kinds of things the Supreme Court should consider. Uh, And uh, he's saying that what the Supreme Court should consider is good old traditional legal materials that you find in law books and statutes and things of that sort, and not academic literature. Part of the problem, of course, is the academic literature uh, has more of a leftward tilt than he would be comfortable with on most subjects. Um, And um, part of it is, uh, I think he is uh, 
honestly committed to the um, view that the Supreme Court at least should try to be above partisan politics. Whether he already always believed that is something else again, uh, but he seems to take the particular role of being chief justice uh, uh, as an important one. After all, um, he's the one, uh, surprisingly to many, um, who said in a case um, a year or so ago uh, that although I might disagree with Roe versus Wade and one of the cases that followed it, we have an obligation to follow it uh, as a matter of precedent. Uh, whether he will always stick with that or not, but at least he's on record as having made a decision uh, he thinks was wrong because of the constraints of precedent. And that is the, the uh, stare decisis? Yes. Uh, uh, fancy Latin um, or not so fancy Latin or mispronounced Latin for stand by what is decided. Do yeah, what a pre- do what the previous courts had done, even if you now think it's wrong. I think that uh, some of the Supreme Court justices should read this book. And, <laughs> and I'm going to take this opportunity to reintroduce you. This book is The Proof. Uses of Evidence in Law, Politics, and Everything Else. And the author and my guest today is Frederick Schauer. And the reason I think they should read this book is that uh, the justices, I think it's Gorsuch and Alito, have contradicted themselves in two separate opinions recently where they upheld something and then shot it down uh, because it has to do with either gerrymandering or the rights of uh, minorities. And uh, where is the proof for their decisions? And the fact of, of this, uh, uh, what is it called? The uh, docket that is not... Uh, shadow docket. A shadow docket. They right. use this to push through things without giving any attribution or any reasoning for it. And that, again, is another reason to read the book. You ought to be able to prove things if you're going to make something that's so startling and that the whole country is going to have to follow. We should understand what your reasoning was when you made that decision. I agree. Uh, And and I think although the Supreme Court is primarily making um, decisions about law and about what ought to be and what the law requires, reasoning is necessary there. But at least one of the themes of the book is that reasoning is also important in thinking about good old-fashioned raw fact. Um, uh, who painted this painting if it's alleged to be a forgery? Uh, uh, where was President Obama born? Uh, uh, and if I can be uh, a bit bipartisan on things of this variety... Um, there were prominent Democrats um, who, without proof, uh, floated the idea that President George W. Bush uh, knew about the 9-11 bombings in advance and uh, and didn't do anything about it. Um, so, um, uh, yes, uh, just in terms of actual basic facts, reasoning is f- far more important than we think it is. Uh, It's not just a matter of observation. And you point out in your book that evidence is the prerequisite for judgments of truth and falsity, and that evidence matters only to those for whom truth matters. And it is not clear that truth matters to everyone in the same contexts and to the same degree. 
So this could relate back to my statement about the Supreme Court justices. Uh, And there have been decisions that have been made where false facts were introduced by uh, one of the sides and they agreed to those false facts without checking them. And so now we've got a decision that stands based on falsity. It's, yeah, and it's, um, I mean, the the line that you read um, comes from the end of the book and comes from the last chapter, which deals with what cognitive um, psychologists called motivated reasoning. That is, uh, we see what we want to see. Uh, it's very depressing. Uh, <laughs> it has been even more depressing in the last three or four or five years. Um, uh, people, even in observing hard facts, uh, have a view about what they would like those facts to be, uh, and they refuse to see anything else. So the somewhat low temperature, low politics example of this um, comes from the way fans react to close calls at sporting events. Um, That is, uh, if there is a question about whether your uh, your player committed a foul or not, or whether a baseball was fair or foul, uh, or whether a uh, tennis ball was in or out, uh, as we well know, both the players and the fans um, will see this totally factual issue based on what they want the outcome to be. Uh, and it turns out, Uh, as a lot of the psychological research has indicated, that this is as true in politics uh, as it is in tennis and baseball and football and basketball, and that's depressing. That is um, where there are absolute hard fact questions and where people argue about it, the side they come out on is depressingly often not based on the evidence but what they want the outcome to be. Uh, I think that um, uh, the press, the media, because uh, it's not all press anymore, it's a radio, right. television, whatever. Um, there are people that are fairly well-known and influential who constantly use false equivalents in order to make a point. And I, I've been reading the New York Times for 60 some odd years, and they are losing me. I'm afraid that I no longer look to them as the paragon of real news being reported properly. Uh, And because one of the reasons is, first of all, they allow their op-ed columnists to use the word lies, but they won't allow their reporters to do that. And then they would come up with, well, everybody does it. Well, if one party in a two-party situation does it 1% of the time and the other party does it 99% of the time, they both don't do it. I mean, technically, yes, but not uh, right. re- realistically. So what do you do with something like that? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, I agree with everything you just said, including the example of um, what we describe as a lie. Uh, uh, back in the old days uh, that some of us remember, Um, a lie as opposed to a falsehood, or as opposed to falsity. A lie was saying something that was false, knowing it was false when you said it. 
Um, and for some years, um, uh, most um, mainstream journalists and most mainstream press outlets drew a distinction between lying and falsity um, uh, and wouldn't use or wouldn't allow their reporters to use the word lie unless they had evidence that the person who said something that wasn't true knew it wasn't true at the time that she or he said it. Uh, that's changing dramatically, as you just mentioned. Uh, there have been uh, dis- debates about this on the pages of the Columbia Journalism Review, among other places. Um, interestingly, and I'm not sure, I don't want to, um, at least as of six months ago or as of a year ago, the Wall Street Journal was one of the daily newspapers that was holding firm on this against some number of other prominent daily newspapers. Uh, but now it turns out that the battle has been, in my view, lost. Uh, that is, falsehoods are described as lies without there being any evidence that uh, the person who said them knew they were false. Uh, now, some things are so obviously false that we can draw the inference um, that the person who said it knew it was false uh, at the time of saying it. And it's at least plausible that some of the um, more recent statements coming from former President Trump and others about the election frauds would be of this variety. That is, maybe at one point they believed that there were election frauds, um, but uh, at some point, it's no longer plausible um, to believe it. So maybe if they say it and it's blatantly false, we can call them liars because we can infer that they now know that it was false. Uh, but still, it's an important distinction between saying something that's false and saying something uh, false that you know is false at the time you said it. Uh, and I worry that we have lost this distinction. Except at the Washington Post. I give Glenn Kessler a lot of credit. He identified over 30,000 lies or misstatements or falsehoods uttered by Donald Trump in his four years as president. Um, now, compare that to the New York Times, who still hasn't really come up with, uh, uh, well, Linda Key. Linda Key does check the veracity of certain statements, but she's not there every day in the newspaper as Glenn Kessler is. So. I give a lot more credit to the Washington Post than I do to the New York Times. Right. And I, I mean, I think the, the larger phenomenon, um, uh, and one of the reasons I wrote this book, is that um, we have increasingly lost the distinction between fact and opinion. Uh, and uh, it used to be that mainstream journalism uh, was insistent about it and obsessive about it. Uh, But now there are very few daily newspapers um, that draw that distinction so rigidly and things that you read on the front page of the New York Times um, with some frequency uh, offer opinions uh, or inferences described as hard facts without alerting the reader to the difference. And now we have a new problem to worry about, as you brought up in your book, paltering. Yeah. 
Faltering is the attempting to deceive without saying anything that is literally false. Once we understood the possibility of faltering and recognize its widespread occurrence, we can appreciate the way in which the traditional definition of lying is potentially too narrow when we are concerned with the conditional interaction and social trust. For those purposes, we have every reason to worry as much about faltering as we do about flat out lying. And from my standpoint, isn't paltering worse than lying since the palterer has to think hard to deceive without lying? Yes, uh, I think that's right. So I wanna give uh, the word which none of us use in our daily life. I never heard uh, it until I read it in your book. And I had not heard it until uh, my former colleague, good friend and uh, occasional co-author, the Harvard economist, Richard Zeckhauser, introduced me to it. And we wrote an article about paltering that largely is about the political economy of paltering. So I'll give a simple example and one I use in the book. Um, so I make furniture. Uh, it's a hobby. I'm not a professional. Uh, I make furniture. Um, and uh, most of my friends and colleagues know that I make furniture. Uh, so someone comes into my office and sees a particularly nice piece of um, furniture uh, and compliments me uh, on uh, the piece of furniture, uh, knowing the uh, and uh, fashioning the compliment in such a way that it's a compliment about um, what I made. I respond by saying, thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, if I just say thank you, I am paltering. That is, I am not saying I made this, but I am encouraging the belief that I made it, even though I did not. Uh, encouraging the uh, belief uh, based on background facts that I made it, even if I did not. And I think you are right. In important ways, paltering is worse because um, we don't know uh, that the, the, the paltery, uh, if I can put it in legalese, uh, the, the recipient of a palter doesn't know uh, what's going on and the palterer takes advantage uh, of that. Uh, so there is... Um, there is a little episode from the television version of MASH going back some number of years um, in which one of the characters, I don't remember which one, let's call it Hawkeye, uh, uh, says to another one of the characters, I think it was whoever was the captain at the time, um, if you don't do this, I'm going to tell everybody that your brother is in prison. Whereupon the captain says, but he's the warden. Uh, and Hawkeye says, but I'm not going to tell him that part. Uh, that's paltering. Uh, that is encouraging a false belief uh, because of people's background and assumptions. Uh, and yes, often it's worse than the flat out lie because it involves an additional layer of deception. And it, it, I guess this is sort of um, uh, associated. Uh, it is in the movie Duck Soup when Chico Marx says to Margaret Dumont, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? <laughs> right. Uh, so um, 
I mean, as you as you have read, um, potentially one of the more controversial parts of the book uh, is that um, I cast a little bit of skepticism on modern skepticism about eyewitness identification and eyewitness testimony. So um, recently, there have been a lot of extremely admirable uh, exonerations of people wrongly convicted of crimes. And it turns out that one of the reasons that these are admirable is that at least many of the exonerations uh, are based on mistaken eyewitness identification. But let's not go too far. Most eyewitness observations um, are accurate. Uh, It's why most evening television news shows call themselves eyewitness news. Uh, And although there is good reason to be skeptical um, about eyewitness identification, especially if the consequences are that somebody is going to go to prison for a long time or even be executed, uh, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's not assume that first-person identification uh, is necessarily or even likely to be flawed. Uh, and indeed, one of the running themes of the book is that probabilities matter. Um, that although it's a good idea in court to require proof beyond a reasonable doubt before we imprison somebody, For most everyday decisions, uh, there's not that degree of evidence, there's not that degree of proof, and it's okay to act on proof that falls far uh, of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. How much evidence do you need um, before you refuse to hire uh, the babysitter where you think that there is a slight possibility that the babysitter is a slight is a child molester? Uh, and that's a dramatic example. But in all sorts of everyday decisions, in all sorts of political decisions, we make probabilistic decisions based on some but not conclusive evidence, and that's okay. Um, that how much evidence we need depends on what the consequences are. There is a story going back um, a number of years where a psychology professor uh, was uh, talking to his class and somebody rushed into the room and said, everybody, stick them up, don't move. And then he ran back out of the room. And then the professor asked for descriptions of the person and how he was armed. And they gave all kinds of different descriptions, including that it was a Colt 45, like uh, they had on Gunsmoke. Others say it was a square boxy, like a 1911 Ford, I mean, uh, um, uh, 45, 1911. And then it turns out the professor brought the person back in the room and what he had in his hand was a banana. Yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, it turns out uh, so um, we talked a few minutes ago about the um, law of evidence at times being thought of as a bunch as a collection of silly rules. One of the silliest rules of the law of evidence uh, is what's called the excited utterance uh, right. uh, exception to the hearsay rule. That's based on the idea that 
what people say when they are under circumstances of excitement or high stress is more likely to be true. That's just wrong, uh, as the experiment that you describe uh, portrays. Now, back when the excited utterance exception was first developed 150 years ago, people were worried about lying. And it is true that under circumstances of high stress or excitement, uh, it's harder to make something up. On the other hand, it's much easier to be mistaken. Um, And therefore, excited utterances, although they are less likely to be intentional lies, are more likely to be unintentional mistakes, as the experiments that you just described uh, portray. Um, But uh, nevertheless, um, most of what we see um, is accurate. Some of what we see is not. It's tragic that sometimes... Uh, We don't understand the difference and people go to prison because of that. Uh, uh, But again, um, for some purposes, uh, what we actually observe is actually what actually happened. What about dying declaration as uh, evidence to be used in court? So it's present the same problem as the uh, uh, excited utterance. Yeah, so uh, when I teach the law of evidence, which I have been um, for 40 some some years, uh, I do, when we talk about the dying declaration um, idea, that is the idea that they on their deathbeds is especially likely to be true, uh, I preface it by telling uh, my students um, that dying declarations tend to happen quite a bit in opera, but but almost <laughs> never in real life. Uh, that is, uh, in real life, people do not make the eloquent statements that they make on their deathbeds uh, in movies and plays and in the opera. Nevertheless, um, uh, even f- apart from that, the law assumes that what you say on your deathbed is more likely to be true. Uh, that dates back to when people were worried uh, that if the last thing they said was untrue, they were going to roast in hell forever. Mm. Now, neither you nor I have any idea about whether it is actually true that we will roast in hell forever if we tell a lie as our past statement, as our last statement. But far fewer people believe it now than believed it 500 years ago. Uh, And as a result, the dying declaration exception to the hearsay rule um, is a relic uh, of earlier times, uh, assuming for the sake of argument that um, I was fully conscious and fully alert when I was making my past statement, last last statement on this earth. Um, One possibility is that I would want to make sure that I was telling the truth. Another possibility is that I would want to settle a lot of old scores, um, a lot of old grudges with my last statements. Um, There are people we want to get back at. Uh, And if saying something untrue is our last uh, conscious words would enable us to get back at them, uh, that's a plausible motivation. So uh, uh, once again, Uh, It may be an area in which some of the 
relics of, of evidence law are uh, not psychologically accurate in terms of what we now know about human cognitive and social psychology. Now I want to move us into uh, another area, not the law, uh, evidence-based medicine. And and you have an interesting statement about that. Uh, It's a movement. Uh, There are real doctors who practice something other than evidence-based. Are there doctors who practice something other than evidence-based medicine? Evidence-free medicine? Who would want a doctor who didn't care about evidence? Well, maybe in Florida, but certainly not in the rest of the country. Right. So I think, um, as I said, the idea of evidence-based medicine is a movement. Uh, It's one with which I have considerable sympathy, Um, but it is based on the idea um, that there is a hierarchy of evidence for some disease or affliction or ailment or whatever. Uh, And that, as we know from science and scientists, the um, serious controlled experiment, the serious controlled laboratory experiment uh, is the gold standard of evidence in science, and it's the gold standard of evidence in medicine. Uh, So insofar as the evidence-based um, uh, movement, evidence-based uh, medicine movement um, wants us to recognize that it's a good thing. But at times, um, it seems to suggest that anything other than controlled laboratory experimentation with placebo-controlled experiments and everything else is pretty close to worthless. Uh, and as I said about eyewitness testimony, that's just not right. There are various other forms of evidence that are still evidence. Uh, uh, maybe they're not the gold standard, but maybe they're the silver standard. Maybe they're pretty good. Maybe they're the best we can do. Uh, maybe a clinician um, who has spent 40 years seeing certain kinds of and draws Uh, qualitative rather than quantitative inferences from that 40 years of experience uh, uh, gets it right most of the time. Um, And uh, insofar as the evidence-based medicine movement wants to denigrate that, um, I think it's important to recognize that that kind of clinical or qualitative practice uh, can still be pretty good evidence. There are lots of fields Uh, of human inquiry, uh, history, for example, that are about facts, but do not uh, have the ability to to do uh, laboratory-controlled experimentation. Uh, We should not disbelieve all historians just because they can't do controlled experiments. Similarly, we should not disbelieve all forms of medicine just because they are not based on placebo-controlled experiments in laboratories. Um, And indeed, uh, uh, although I have no uh, qualms with saying that placebo-controlled experiments um, are the gold standard, that, like many other things, comes at a price. Um, um, One of the uh, great novels of the 20th century, Sinclair Lewis's Arrowsmith, uh, is about the fact that sometimes you have pretty good evidence 
that you can cure a disease, but you don't have great evidence that you can cure the disease. Uh, and then the question is, do you wait until you have great evidence, which is what got, um, science would suggest, or do you say uh, it's better to cure some people now, even if we're not absolutely certain? That's a genuine moral dilemma that um, physicians confront all the time uh, when they have to decide whether some drug that is probably effective but has not yet been proved conclusively to be effective should be given to people uh, who actually have the disease. Uh, so uh, I appreciate your uh, giving me an opportunity to tout my book. I want to tout Sinclair Lewis's Arrowsmith. Okay. And I think that this is a a good point to introduce the adage that you had in your book. According to a well-known adage attributed to Dr. Theodore Woodward of the University of Maryland School of Medicine in the 1940s, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Yes, uh, it's, uh, and apparently uh, this is discussed widely within medical schools. The basic idea is that probabilities matter. What is most likely true is probably true. Uh, And um, although um, uh, it's a good idea to investigate low probability possibilities, uh, although it is a good idea to recognize that what we think is true uh, ain't necessarily so, as the line from some uh, 1940s musical uh, put it. Uh, Still, um, uh, the zebras, not horses adage uh, indicates that it is a mistake to make decisions based on um, low probability possibilities if we have the opportunity to make decisions based on what is more probable. That goes back to what I was saying about eyewitness uh, testimony. Uh, Depending on the stakes, um, uh, we shouldn't uh, relinquish our traditional reliance on eyewitnesses just because sometimes eyewitnesses get it wrong. And it would, uh, it's also something from your book that I'm going to read next. It would be nice if our evidence-based conclusions were as airtight as our mathematical ones. Two plus two equals four. The square root of 81 is nine, period. But in the world of fact, and thus the world of evidence, things are never so clear. Like it or not, uncertainty in factual judgment is an inevitable, is as inevitable an aspect uh, of the human condition. And that's what the problem, uh, where the problem lies, because we have to make decisions based upon whatever facts we have, which may not be conclusive evidence. And you bring up what's, what goes for a criminal trial as opposed to a civil trial. Right. Um, so it's uh, um, the, in criminal cases, the, re- the uh, absolutely appropriate requirements of proof beyond a reasonable doubt Um, is based on a maxim from the great judge and legal theorist of the 18th century, William Blackstone, um, who said, um, it is better that 10 guilty people go free than that one innocent person be punished. Uh, We are going to make mistakes. 
And then the question is, how do we allocate the risk of those mistakes? The criminal law properly says it's better to make the mistakes of freeing um, the guilty than make the mistakes of imprisoning the innocent. But uh, we still have to uh, operate some sort of criminal law system. Uh, We can't avoid all of the mistakes by imprisoning no one. So we accept that there will be some mistakes. And the question is allocating the ratio of those uh, mistakes. When we move out of the criminal law and we think of the civil case, automobile accidents or something like that, the requirement is no longer proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's proof by a preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not, bare probabilities. And that's because it's just as bad if someone who is injured by someone else's negligence cannot recover as someone who is not negligent is made to pay. Both of those errors are roughly equivalent, or at least so the civil law thinks. Uh, And that's why we have proof by a preponderance of the evidence, or as the English put it in a slightly more accurate statement of the same idea, balance of probabilities. But we don't do that for the criminal law, and it's good that we don't. Uh, And it's interesting, the next thing here... Uh, follows along somewhere in there. When faced with factual uncertainty, we typically have at least some evidence for one conclusion or the other, and maybe for both, but rarely do we have no evidence at all. And so we should not confuse uncertainty with ignorance. Webster's Dictionary tells us that to be ignorant is to be destitute of knowledge, but we are rarely destitute when it comes to reaching conclusions about facts. Yeah. Um, So uh, uh, that statement, unfortunately, was probably more accurate four or five years ago than it is now. Uh, But it was at least based on the idea that most of the factual disputes in public life are ones in which there's a little evidence on one side and some evidence on the other side, and we have to decide how to uh, balance those. It is an unfortunate fact of modern political life um, that um, people, uh, 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 perhaps led by uh, former President Trump most prominently, often say things with which, about which there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever. That phenomenon is increasing. I worry about it. Uh, we all ought to worry about it. Um, but we should distinguish that from cases in which, yes, there's some evidence, but there's more evidence on one side than there is uh, on the other. And we have to engage in the difficult reasoning processes uh, of trying to decide which is more persuasive, uh, which do we more, um, which is more uh, likely to believe uh, which side has the stronger evidence where there is evidence on both sides. Uh, one of, the reasons, one of the things that happens in most trials is that there's evidence in both side, on both sides. Uh, the legal system is designed to make sure that cases in which there's zero evidence on, what's, uh, on one side rarely get the trial. Uh, and what you point out, though, is that uh, in the book is that the jury is the determinant factor in whether a person on the witness stand is lying or not. Yeah. 
And that creates problems as well, because as you pointed out, we are really not very good at detecting lies that people tell us. We are, we are bad at it. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, it is a uh, California-based cognitive and social psychologist, Bella DiPaolo, uh, who's done the most important research uh, on the ability of ordinary people to distinguish um, who's telling the truth and who's not. And depressingly, her research indicates that ordinary people are scarcely better at, uh, than random at determining who's uh, telling the lie, who's telling a lie and who's not. That's one of the reasons why at least one of the claims in the book um, is that lie detection evidence, whether it be classic polygraphs or more modern um, functional magnetic resonance imaging, uh, brain scans, um, may be um, unduly denigrated by the legal system. They're not great. Um, the chance of error in a lie detection uh, test uh, is uh, significant, uh, depending on which studies you believe. Um, it may be somewhere between 10 and 25%. Uh, but that's still a lot better than the ability of ordinary people to determine who's lying and who's telling the truth. Ordinary people rely on a considerable amount of folk wisdom. Uh, if you blink a lot, you're lying. If you don't look at the questioner, you're lying. Uh, all of these things, which are what jurors use, uh, are even less reliable uh, than polygraphs and a whole bunch of other things. Um, so, um, I think we have good reason to worry about the law's traditional, uh, view that the jury is the lie detector in the courtroom. Uh, that doesn't mean that we should hook up defendants in criminal cases to lie detections. There are, to polygraphs, uh, there are Fifth Amendment concerns that are uh, huge about that uh, and related issues. Um, but some states, New Mexico probably most prominently, uh, have begun to be more receptive to lie detection evidence uh, than they were in the past. And now that the traditional polygraph has been um, uh, supplanted by uh, whether it be uh, brain scans and neuroscience kind of evidence uh, or other forms of modern uh, techniques designed to do the same thing, uh, maybe the legal system ought to be a little bit more receptive to that than it has been and a little bit less trusting of jurors as lie detectors than it has been in the past. You have an interesting uh, paragraph about lying. Uh, Lying is a worry, not only in court. Concern about lying has existed as long as there has been lying. The Ten Commandments would hardly have commanded people not to bear false witness had false witness not, even then, been perceived as a serious problem. And although the Ten Commandments tried mightily to get people to stop lying, the practice persists. Husbands lie to their wives. Children lie to their parents. Parents lie to their children. Merchants lie to their customers. Criminals lie to the police. The police lie to suspects. Politicians lie to their constituents. Students submitting papers lie to their professors. Lying, it seems, is everywhere. Yes, uh, it's a worry. 
and it does suggest, uh, if I'm right about that, which I think I am, it does suggest that our reliance on testimony, our reliance on what people have said, is entitled to a fair amount of skepticism. We get evidence from a lot of places. We get evidence from what we experience. We get evidence from what we see. We get evidence from what others tell us. That's testimony in the broadest sense. Um, But we ought to recognize that what people tell us is often uh, influenced substantially by the motivations of the teller. Uh, and as a result, the more we can uh, make our decisions based on multiple pieces of evidence, rather than just on what someone has told us, the better off we are likely to be. So we're coming near the end of uh, the program, and it's been a very quick time going through this. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Is there anything you would like to leave us with? Um. Not much. Uh, I'll just repeat one. um, uh, Well, let me change that. Repeat two messages that I think are the running themes uh, of the book. One, probabilities matter. Uh, Lots of things that are not totally beyond beyond the shadow of a doubt, no doubt about it, uh, true, uh, may still be pretty good evidence. And the related message um, is that uh, lots of times we have to make decisions based on less than certain evidence, but that's still a lot better than making evidence on no, making decisions of no evidence at all. So to sum up the whole thing in two words, evidence matters. Well, and the evidence that I'm going to give right now is the fact that this was a very enjoyable show. You have been listening to Politics, A Love Story. My guest today has been Frederick Schauer about his book, The Proof, Uses of Evidence in Law, Politics, and Everything Else. And I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Thank you very much for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.